Hey, everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Okay, my audience, I'm super excited about this episode. I know I say that on every episode, but you wouldn't feel great if I popped on here and I said, hey, I've got a really crappy episode for you. Hope you enjoy it. So as usual, I have an exciting episode. I plucked him, you guys, right out of the Facebook group. This is a real Addiction Unlimited listener, and I plucked him out of the Facebook group to come on and do an episode with me. I'm super excited to hear his story. I think you're going to love his story. Let's welcome Steven to the show. Hello, sir. Thank you for coming on and doing this with me. Hi, Angela. How are you? Fantastic. Good. I'm very excited to be on the podcast. This is um, a great treat. (laughs) It's so good to meet you and get to know you a little bit better, too. I mean, I know we've been chatting a bit online, but it's nice to get to have some virtual face-to-face time. It certainly is, especially (laughs) in this uh, current environment. (laughs) Yeah, where everything is Zoom. (laughs) All of our lives have been reduced to Zoom. Unmute. <laughs> <laughs> well, take a minute and tell everybody a little bit about you and your sober story. Yeah, so I'm Stephen. I'm 45. I used to be a daily drinker um, and a regular user of cocaine for over 20 years. Uh, the last six of those years, I was easily drinking a bottle of vodka a day and then even more at the weekends. Uh, finally got sober in February 2020. Uh, It was the morning after I decided to to take a pic of myself to see if I was sober enough to drive, as you do, because that's a really normal thing to do. Um, So obviously I wasn't sober enough to drive, so I went back to sleep. Um, But when I was driving back home and eventually sobered up, I was that paranoid and that anxious and full of regret that I thought, I just can't keep doing this myself anymore. And that was the day that I stopped. Wow. Have you, like, did you think about it before that? Were you like the rest of us where you had been kind of battling with yourself? Like, I know I need to stop. I know I need to do something, but it's so hard to figure out how to start stopping. (laughs) Yeah, that actually stopped for, before that six year period, uh, which was the final six years before that, I'd stopped for about nine months. And uh, a couple of people said, I think you're an alcoholic. And I was like, I'm not an alcoholic. Look at me, I can stop. So I stopped for nine months. Uh, and then it was a friend of mine. She got bored of the fact that I wasn't drinking anymore. Uh, and then she was like, come on, just have a beer. So I had a beer and started drinking again. And then probably a couple of months after that, she fell out with me because I was drunk. <laughs> and we've never spoken to each other since. So there we go. That's how well, it yeah, goes, right? They, they, want, they want you to drink again because they want you, they want to have fun with you, but they don't want to deal with the consequences of our kind of drinking. Oh, yeah, they don't want to deal with the fallouts. I mean, I, I was that bad uh, when it was in the final years of drinking. Um, I was sat at a dinner table with a friend and they weren't drinking as quick as what I was. And I picked up the fork and I had the fork in my hand and I thought, if she doesn't finish a drink, I'm going to stab her in the hand. <laughs> Just hurry up. 
finish your drink so I can have more. So it, it was, it, everything was just all consuming. It consumed my whole life drinking. So when I was finishing work, uh, when I could have the next drink, you know, it, absolutely everything controlled my life with alcohol. Yeah, I think that's one of the most sort of baffling things to me when I look back is realizing how all of those areas of my life really started to revolve around alcohol. Yeah. Like every decision I made was about drinking in one way or another, like how quickly can I leave so I can go drinking or do I need to leave early to get alcohol? Do I need to stop on the way and bring it to where, what route do I want to drive? Where do I want to work? Like all of those things. And it's crazy because you don't realize it when you're in it. You don't realize that you're making all your choices around your drinking when you're in it. But when you have some distance and looking back and like, yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, it's even for if a friend said, so let's meet up to to have drinks. I'd have to have three drinks before you even left the house. I couldn't speak to anybody until I'd walked in through the bar. I couldn't speak to anybody in the bar until I stood at the bar and had been served. And once I had that drink in my hands, I just went, I can relax because I've got the drinking hands and that that's just not normal (laughs) that's when you realize you've got a problem and that's when you realize you need to do something about it if if you're getting that bad that you you need to sort that out I mean I was lucky really um I'd had a car accident not through drinking and I prolapsed uh, my disc in my neck uh, and they changed medication for me and put me on amitriptyline which is a nerve blocker, and it also acts as uh, an antidepressant and uh, anti-anxiety. And it just gave me that break, that breathing space to catch myself, collect myself, and gave me that, again, that breathing space so that I could see clearly and move forward. And that's what helps me get sober, if I'm honest, was just having that breathing space. I mean, the drinking was was so terrible. I mean, you probably class me as a um, a high bottom is how I came about. Uh, And and I was sat outside a client's office on the phone to the doctor, suicidal. Every day I woke up, I just wanted to die. If somebody would have driven, the warrior would have driven into the car and killed me, I would be quite happy for that to have happened. And I was sat outside a client's office in floods of tears, just telling the doctor what was going on. Put the phone down in true alcoholic style, wiped my face, walked in the office and did a full day's work because that's what you do when you when you're an alcoholic and you you manipulate situations and environments. But on the outside, my life looks amazing. So I've got a nice house, I've got a nice car, got money coming in, so I had friends, you know. But on the inside, it was like Dante's Inferno walking through the six circles of hell, sorry, the nine circles of hell every day. It was just dreadful absolutely dreadful. Yeah, God, I can relate to every single piece of that. In that dual life that we create, right? Like you're saying, sitting there in tears on the phone with the doctor. And then it's like you brush it off, <laughs> put right, put your game face on and you go yeah. do your thing. And that really that's the duality of it. You yeah. know, that's why I did, I did an episode too about um, the difference between high functioning and high bottom, because I feel like people get those very confused because 
rock bottom it really is an emotional place. Rock yeah. bottom happens on the inside, right? For a lot of us, there's an outside event, right? Which for me was my car accident. So there is an outside event that can take place, but rock bottom is really how dreadful you feel on the inside. Yeah, definitely. Because we can almost always make the outside picture appear high functioning, but that yeah. doesn't mean that we have a high bottom, right? If emotionally I'm bottomed out, and everything you said about wanting to die, like I think every addicted person on the planet has felt that. And, and I've talked about this too, where suicidal in the regard, like I didn't want to kill myself. I had this thing about what suicide leaves for the people around you. Yes. And I have a niece who is now older and my mom and there aren't very many girls. And I just thought I never wanted to leave them with that confusion and, and the questioning and why and not understanding. I never wanted to leave that behind. So I, I didn't think I would take that route. But if something happened, like I always say, I always thought that I would just go to sleep one day and never wake up. Yeah. And I prayed for that every uh, day of my life. Every day I prayed yes. for that. <laughs> yes, because I was so miserable. So although I was high functioning, right, feeling like that every day of your life is, that's not high functioning, right? Oh. Emotionally, I was and a it's disaster. it's not fun either. <laughs> no, no, it's horrible. Yeah. And you see too where, like where you're, the fun part of your drinking gets so much smaller. You know, like the fun yeah. part, the enjoyable part gets so much shorter because you drink so fast, you just bypass the fun part anyway. Yeah. But that, that's kind of like how it comes around, isn't it? You know, you... You're having fun, then the fun turns into a habit. The habit then turns into an addiction. And then for me, that addiction turned into a physical addiction. And before I knew it, I was just being dragged down constantly every day. So the reason why you drank in the first place was to, to lift yourself up is actually the reason why you're being dragged down. <laughs> it's like a, a catch-22, yeah. you know, it's awful. Yeah. And that really is the nature of addiction, right? Like, I have a different relationship with substances because I use substances for the effect they give me. Yeah. That's where you're in trouble from day one. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Because non-alcoholic people, they don't ever think of alcohol as a solution. A non-alcoholic person never thinks, oh, if I have a couple of drinks, I'll be fine. If I have a couple of drinks, it'll take away my anxiety. It'll take away my social anxiety. I'll be able to talk to people. You know, non-alcoholic people don't think like that. They don't use alcohol as a solution, right? Yeah. So it's like from the get-go, I was off base <laughs> you know, with, with how I drank and why I drank. Yeah. I think again with that as well, it's not what you're doing, whether it's drinking or drugs, it's why are you drinking like that? Why are you doing the drugs? And for me, that's where I kind of like then picked up uh, on what was happening to me. Again, I was on the other trip to me and it gave me that break and it gave me that clear moment to be able to, to catch myself. And I think uh, Frida Kahlo was quoted as saying, I drank to drown my sorrows, but the bastards weren't to swim. And that's exactly what happened to me. It got to a point where I was drinking. And as soon as I started drinking, these emotions and problems and issues that I'd had in my past and my childhood 
started bubbling up to the surface. So I'm sat there every night, crying my eyes out. <laughs> and I thought, actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write these down. And this is how I process through it. So I wrote the problems down. Uh, and then in the morning, I'd read through the problem that I'd written down and, and then work through that, that problem. And then again, the same thing had happened the night after the start drinking again. The carousel of shame and guilt had churned mm. up. And uh, I think I put on there well, with the hobby horses. So on the carousel, you've got the horses going up and down. So each horse to me was a problem. And eventually I plucked all these horses off where I was left with just the, the bare buckles of the, the carousel. And at that point, once I'd worked through all my problems, I no longer had a reason to drink. And for me, it was so easy for me to stop at that point because I knew my health was failing, my mental health was dreadful. Um, you know, I was having constant problems with the depression and the anxiety. And if I now sold or sorted through the bulk of my problems, I'm now creating and causing and propelling these problems forwards now by continuing to drink. If I want this to stop, I've got to stop drinking. Something has to change. And it was at that point, more or less, that I stopped drinking. Yeah, what an incredible journey. That's so good. What yeah, would you crazy say? Crazy journey. <laughs> yeah, crazy journey for sure. Yeah, however you do it, it can be a little bit crazy. Um, what would you say for you has been your biggest struggle living a sober life, right? Because obviously sober life is a lot different from our drinking lives in many ways. Really? (laughs) I mean, I hope so. (laughs) If it's not, we've got to have bigger conversation. (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) So what would you say, what would you say has been the hardest thing for you? Like what's been your biggest struggle in sobriety and staying sober? So the biggest struggle for me was the probably the most challenging aspect of the recovery is that I'd lost, I felt like I'd lost my identity because my whole life revolved around drugs and alcohol. So, so as a single sober gay man, I began to feel isolated from the gay community. As you know, it's heavily populated by bars and clubs. And I didn't really know any other sober gay people that could help me navigate the minefield. Um, so if we just put this into some form of perspective, Uh, The population in the UK is 67 million. 2.2% of the population identify as lesbian, gay or bisexual. So that's 1.47 million. There's an estimated 20% of that community that has substance issues. So that's 294,000 people. So trying to find 294,000 people out of a population of 67 million (laughs) is really difficult for a straight person. If you wanted to meet another straight person, you can just sit your head out the front door, go to the shop, walk down the street. For me to meet another gay person, I literally have to get in the car and travel. Um, There's... We went to a local, sorry, where I live, our population is 20,000, and I know about 10 to 12 gay people. And I went to a local festival with four other friends. We actually joked on the way back when we were driving home that if we had a car accident, there'd be written up in the the, the newspaper, Northwich Mourns is 50% of the gay scene dies. (laughs) (laughs) So again, for for me, it's difficult. So if you want to... So so the challenge that I had was obviously trying to find my tribe again, as you say, 
try and find your tribe, find your tribe. And for me, so I was looking and looking and I couldn't find it anywhere. So in the end, I just decided to set up my own tribe and set up my own group called Sober Gay Socials. Um, so that's been up and running now for a couple of months. And what we do is uh, the first Sunday of every month, we go out and have Sunday lunch. And then every third Saturday of the month, we'll do like a different event. So last Saturday, we went bowling. Uh, and it's been really good. We've had loads of interest. There's about 62 people now on the group. Uh, it's a really good group. And it's nice to have that support and be around you. Again, it sounds probably to be around gay and sober people. It's just nice to be around that. It's nice, obviously, to go to different meetings and different places. Uh, with and where you just meet normal people can we cut that out normal people <laughs> normal Listen, people <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing normal about any of the people <laughs> i don't care where they are who they are what they've got going on none of us are normal <laughs> yeah so it, it was just it's just nice to have that sober gay group and it's a local one as well so we we all go out and, and do things uh, and that that was obviously the solution to, to overcoming that challenge. And I think the other challenges that you get in recovery as well is the first. So the first time you go to a social event, the first time you go on holiday, the first time you have sober sex. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a catchphrase now that people know me for. As soon as I walk into a social environment, I just go, I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to do it. Yeah, that's the best way to do it. Just put it out there. Everybody knows half the people in the room are going, me too, me too. Yeah, and everybody wishes that they'd said that first as well. You know, everybody in that room is nervous, whether they're sober or they're not sober. Um, but yeah, yeah so for me, that's my new catchphrase. I just say it straight out. And then people tend to come over and go, God, I'm really nervous as well, actually. And, and you know, you start up a conversation and you relax into it. It's fascinating to me, too, because you always like it makes sense. Of course, we all want to be around like minded people. You know what I mean? And which is why I say find your tribe. And as adults, we all have a million tribes. Like we have a lot of pieces of a puzzle that makes us up. So I have lots of tribes for different things. And like sometimes I like to go to women's meetings. Some most of the time I go to mixed meetings because there are more, you know, but but it is you always want to be connected to like-minded people, just like I like going to groups and masterminds with other entrepreneurs because that's its own little level of crazy, and you have to be connected. And truly, I think, and you hear this a lot in the recovery world that a big part of this illness is lack of connection. You know, it's yeah, loneliness. <laughs> it's like that we feel apart from, we sort of, we seem to sort of have this natural intrinsic feeling of separation and you yeah. have to do so much to overcome that and be connected and, and let people know you. That's kind of where I, I think the, the relapse comes from, especially, I mean, I could only speak for myself, um, but being ostracized from a group or being disconnected from a group and especially with being in a minority group to start off with, if you're feeling isolated, 
the easiest way to be back in that group again is to start doing the drinking and carry on doing the drugs. And again, that's another reason why I set this group up, just to, to promote the fact that there is a, a life outside of drinking and doing drugs and being popular, but well, not popular, but being visible on the, in the gay community. You know, that's I want to carve out that space so people know that there is an option for them to do that. Again, I think that's probably why I relapsed the, the first time round was a, you do feel ostracised, you feel left out. I don't want to feel left out, and I shouldn't be left out either. But there was nothing there for me to, to, to do. There was no group for me to go to, or I didn't feel like there was a group for me to go to. Whereas with the one I've set up, it is visible, it is visual, and people know that they can come to it, and hopefully that will prevent people from relapsing because they know they're around like-minded people and they've got that security there. Yeah, that's incredible. And really, I have to say, as a person who has started a million things, like I'm so proud of you for starting that group because not very many people have the courage. Like everybody wishes, I wish there was a group for this and I wish I could Mm -hmm. find this, but not very many people have the courage to really step up and put something together and to invite people to be a part of it. And that's what we need more of. You know, this whole thing could be sobriety and recovery could be more visible in a million areas if we had more people willing to start things to to let people be a part of and allow us an opportunity to connect. So I think that is phenomenal. And to normalize it as well. I've noticed a difference with myself and other people. So my <laughs> friends will phone up and they'll say, oh, do you fancy meeting for a coffee? They go, no, no, I've got an AA meeting coming up. Then they're going to NA. And that's yeah. become yeah. the norm now. <laughs> Whereas before, if you say that to, to somebody else, that isn't so, but they'd be like, that. You, what? <laughs> It'd be like a massive thing for them. But now it is normalised. It is normalised for me. And I, I am vocal and visual, visible about my sobriety as well I don't think you should hide it I don't think you should be ashamed of it uh, being sober it's not a bad thing you know what you're doing being sober takes so much strength and so much energy to do that if I don't want to shout it (laughs) you do you just want to shout about it you know look at me I've done this you know and it's been such a massive challenge for me to to get to, to this point yeah I was always from day one just so proud and I think too, probably just some gratitude for getting out of the hell that I was living in every day, you know, just to have light at the end of the tunnel, which I didn't feel like I had for years. I feel like I was just trapped in this hole and there was no light. Yeah. And I had so much gratitude for just having a solution, like where I didn't have to live like that anymore, you know, and I was always just really proud yeah. to be sober and to have fought that monster and to come out the other side because it is phenomenal. I mean, we are true warriors. There's no question. People in recovery are warriors for sure. Definitely. And I think it helps too that there are so many more people being vocal about their recovery now where, especially like even when I got sober, like some celebrities would talk about it. I was probably exposed to that more being in Los Angeles for so long, but It's like on every television show. I don't know how it is in the UK, but here I'm telling you almost every TV show now has some sober storyline. There's a character or two characters that are sober or going to rehab, struggling, going to meetings. Like 
it really is so much more public now than it ever used to be. I'm glad she said that. I thought Netflix was profiling me. (laughs) 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 Every TV program I watch on Netflix, I feel it's like something something like looking behind the computer. (laughs) They're listening to you. (laughs) Well, tell us, before we close, tell everybody how they can find your group because I really want to help spread the word as much as possible about this uh, for where you are because this is again such a needed resource so tell everybody where they can find you yeah so it's on Facebook and it's sober gay socials Um, again it is Manchester England UK based so if you're, we do have a few Americans on there and some different Canada and some different Australia. So I don't think they're going to be able to come to the events, but it's nice to have the support. Uh, but yeah, it is it's a local um, community. It is a local community support group. So if you are to, into like California, probably not for you. <laughs> <laughs> but when I come there, can I go to lunch? <laughs> Oh, you can definitely come to lunch. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, you know, um, last question, favorite question. What's your favorite thing about being a sober person? I found me again after so, so many years of being lost, depressed, the anxiety. Uh, and probably about nine months into to being sober, I felt like I'd shed that skin. I'd got used to, to being sober and I could start focusing back on who I was, what did I want. I think you've seen pictures of me. I've started horse riding again. Uh, I go running. All the things that I'd wanted to do. You know, it's like when you're drunk, you sit there when you're drunk, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And you never do because you're just either hungover or you're too busy drinking. I just feel like I found me again. I understand who I am. I know what I'm about. I I laugh all the time. I laugh at all my own jokes. I think I'm hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just a fun person and people like being around me again, whereas before... As family, friends, they tolerated me. Now I'm welcomed. Uh, and you, you can't take that away from anybody. Yeah, what a beautiful thing, definitely. Stephen, thank you so much again for coming on. And thank you, Angela, for having me. It's been a yeah, pleasure. Yeah, what a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.